0: Thank you. episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another fascinating guest today who is helping to create a better tomorrow, literally for billions of people uh, on the planet. Uh, we have the honor today of being joined by uh, another, the Dr. Peter Hotez, uh, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics, Molecular Virology, and Microbiology. Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also the chief uh, section of pediatric tropical medicine and Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair of Tropical Pediatrics. Uh, he also serves as Rice University's uh, Baker Institute Fellow in Disease and Poverty and co-director of Parasites Without Borders, a global nonprofit organization with a focus on uh, those suffering from various parasitic diseases in subtropical environments. Uh, Dr. Hotez is internationally recognized uh, with his expertise in neglected tropical diseases and vaccine development leading the only product development partnerships for uh, new vaccines for hookworms, schistosomiasis, and Chagas disease, and is just coming off major wins uh, for uh, emergency approval uh, in India, Botswana, some other countries of his team's Corbivax protein subunit COVID-19 vaccine, of which he and the previous guest on our show, Dr. Maria Batazi, were just recently nominated for the Nobel Prize. Uh, a lot of exciting things to discuss here. Uh, but Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to come talk to us a little bit today. Oh,
1: thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, um, you know, before we jumped on the call today, you know, I, I pulled down the recent, uh, the COVID vaccine figures, uh, saw numbers, 11.35 billion doses, uh, 4.53 billion people fully vaccinated, but we still have uh, uh, 42% of the world that is not vaccinated yet, and only about 14% of people in low-income countries have at least received one dose, uh, In comes Corpovax, Um, you take us into a a little bit of this fascinating story, which goes back actually to your work on not SARS-CoV-2, but SARS-CoV-1 back in 2004, and a little bit of the journey that this uh, fascinating product has taken.
1: Yeah, you're right. There still remains this global vaccine inequality. It's been difficult to scale a production of the mRNA and adenovirus and particle vaccines. These are new technologies And we knew this was going to be an issue. And one of the things that we do at our vaccine center is develop vaccines that use a technology that's already widely in place in low and middle income countries. And that is through recombinant protein fermentation and yeast. And that approach is used to make the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine. So in theory any vaccine producer in a low and middle income country that makes recombinant hepatitis B vaccine in yeast, which is a vegan technology, you no know, animal cells, human cells, animal protein, human protein can make our vaccine. And, and those kinds of vaccine producers are in place in Indonesia and Bangladesh and India, the, the list goes on and in Brazil and Argentina and, and Thailand and, and Vietnam. And so that's been our approach. For our vaccines for poverty-related neglected diseases, as our first choice for technology is to use that, because that way we can ensure it'll actually get used. And and we adopted the same approach for coronavirus vaccines about ten years ago, because that's what we know how to do well and do it at, and maximize the yields of the antigen to do it at the lowest possible cost. And so when the COVID-19 sequence came along that's what we did. And it moved pretty quickly because we had ironed out a lot of the issues with the first SARS vaccine. So when we got the new sequence, we were able to move reasonably quickly. And um, and the stars aligned, it worked well. And then we transferred the technology with no patent to um, vaccine producers who were interested in working with us from India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and now Botswana. And India has moved very quickly. They've now released the vaccine for emergency use. They're to start. They're focusing on the unvaccinated kids. So as of today, it's gone into 20 million unvaccinated, uh, 20 million kids, 12 to 14 in India um, since the campaign started last month. And now it's they're looking at the five to 11 year olds soon. So that's exciting. And then as a booster dose for adults, and and then it got approved in Botswana. So things are starting to to really accelerate so it's a very exciting time for us
0: it's it's a, it's a fascinating story and you know i i sit here in um In downtown Philadelphia, sort of one of the the epicenters of of U.S. vaccine history. And my my next door neighbor for a couple of decades, before he passed away, happened to be Barry Blumberg of hepatitis B antigen Nobel fame. And here you are, you know, you're being nominated and, you know, there's shades of Jonas Salk here and, you know, you can't pat in the sun. Uh, Say a few words, just if you would, about what, you know, this Nobel nomination means to you and and your team in general.
1: Well, I mean, we're holding off on buying airline tickets to Oslo just yet, but, um, uh, but it's nice to be nominated and, uh, and it's great recognition. And, and the fact that it's for the Peace Prize is especially meaningful because one of the things that I've devoted my life to is not only making vaccines for people who live in poverty, but also um, accelerating what I call vaccine diplomacy, building trust and vaccine development between nations. I served as U.S. science envoy in the Obama administration and um, to try to foster U.S. relations with vaccine development in the Middle East um, and North Africa at a very tough time during the ISIS occupation in 2015, 2016. So it's especially meaningful from that standpoint and going up against all the anti-vaccine aggression now which has been become such a killer movement here in the United States and, and now globally.
0: Yeah, and, uh, I didn't mention at the intro that, you know, aside from several books that you've published, you have the new one, Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy, uh, in this time of anti-science. And, um, yeah, you, you sort of coined this term, vaccine diplomacy, where you bring together, as you were saying, um, you know, you've written about, uh, anti-poverty, uh, sort of this moniker that re- refers to these, uh, these neglected tropical diseases, how they trap populations, you know, they, they may not kill as many people as the tuberculosis and the malaria, but they cause substantial misery and Maria went through uh, some of these numbers uh, on the previous show. Um, the new book sort of connects um, all sorts of other things that are happening in the world in terms of instability and the migrations and, as you were saying, the rise of uh, sort of this anti-vaccine movement. Um, where, where do you think we're going? And, I mean, because we, we hear about you know organizations, you write us about some in the book in terms of uh, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, was it the gay gate- Foundation, other organizations involved here. We've seen a lot about sort of the U.S. State Department and, of course, Department of Defense involved with Operation Warp Speed. Where do you think we're going with some of the the development of this vaccine diplomacy model that you uh, write about in the book?
1: Well, two steps forward, one step back. I mean, I think we've you know done a, a lot's happened over the last twenty years with the formation of the Gavi Alliance to the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization to accelerate. Um, pediatric immunizations globally and this is a partnership with the World Health Organization UNICEF and Gates Foundations and the pharma companies i think you know that's been really great for harnessing the multinational pharma companies to providing vaccines for kids in low and middle income countries but then we've seen some reversals as well we've seen reversals in this time of this covid-19 vaccine inequalities that i think the policymakers went too far in one direction um, around the multinationals thinking only the multinationals can do this. And we have to use all brand new technologies for speed and innovation and got some interesting vaccines for mRNA vaccines and had no virus particle vector vaccines for COVID-19. But there was not that commitment to for, for equity. And And no commitment to produce vaccines like ours, which could be made locally and ensure it gets delivered to populations in low and middle income countries. So we were actually cut out of Operation Warp Speed and a lot of the G7 initiatives, which was a mistake. Because had we had that support earlier, I think we could have been further ahead and maybe prevented the emergence of the Delta variant that came out of an unvaccinated population out of India or Omicron out of an unvaccinated population in Southern Africa. So not only was it the wrong thing to do from a humanitarian perspective, but it also was not in our enlightened self-interest not, not to make that commitment to vaccinate the world. But that's what we did. And and fortunately we were able to raise some philanthropy here in Texas and and in New York with the JPB Foundation and and others and 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 that made a big difference. But I think had we had the public support from the G7 countries. We might have even been further along, but we're, we're making up for a lost time pretty quickly, and now things are, are moving in the right direction. I think the other big uh, negative determinant around preventing vaccinations is the rise of this very aggressive anti-vaccine movement that um, started out Asserting that vaccines cause autism and coming out of grassroots groups, you know, and mom and pop groups on Facebook. And it's grown to something much more ominous. And that is, it looked hooked up to political extremism on the far right. And now you've got the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers marching at anti vaccine rallies. And it's been full on adopted by the House Freedom Caucus of the Republican Party to. That makes statements like first they're going to vaccinate you, and then they're going to take away your guns and your Bibles. And as ridiculous as that sounds to us, there's a quarter of the country that believes it. Or, or you know, Representative Marjorie Taylor Green, who calls people who vaccinate medical brown shirts using <laughs> inflammatory Nazi uh, analogies. And then it's it's amplified nightly now on. Fox News and the the Fox News anchors at night go after me. And so it's not only targeting the science, but the scientists. So we've seen in this time of COVID arise a very scary uh, anti-vaccine, anti-science, I don't know what you wanna call it, ecosystem or empire um, that is not gonna stop at COVID-19 vaccines. I think it's been enabled and I'm worried about its spillover impact on other childhood vaccination programs. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, one of the uh, the areas we talked a little about here on the show is is this uh, topic of one health and sort of the connections between people and, and and animals and the environment and sort of the the zoonotic viral transfer around the globe and all the other scary stuff that may still be out there. We've heard these terms about sort of pan coronavirus uh, vaccine initiatives. You've written a lot about a uh, pan anti pan-helminfic vaccines, thinking once again, about some of these uh, these NTDs that you focus on and, and Parasite Without Borders, you know, has obviously this this uh, mission of eliminating the suffering due to these parasitic infections. What's the vision about what you're gonna be doing there? You know, obviously you have this basket that you're looking at. If you can get rid of it, the some of these novel vaccines, you're really gonna improve the lives of, of, of hundreds of millions of people in the developing world. Um, what are, you, what are you doing on sort of the, the pan Vic vaccine front? If you could talk about that a bit.
1: Well, it's funny. I've been on a bunch of Zoom calls recently. Um, this is something that I've been working on since I was an MD, PhD student in New York at Rockefeller yeah. and Cornell. I've always wanted to develop vaccines for parasitic infections. The coronaviruses came much later on, but... Most of my 40 years in this business has been, or I guess you call it a business, money losing business <laughs> is, um, is developing vaccines for diseases like female genital schistosomiasis which is uh, maybe one of the most uh, common gynecologic conditions on the African continent affecting uh, adolescent girls and, and young women. Um, that most people haven't heard about, but you know, we're, the estimate is 40 million girls and women are affected by this condition. So we're making uh, that vaccine and that's now moving into phase two clinical trials and also a vaccine for hookworm infection, which is a huge issue in pregnant women who also get malaria and suffer from profound anemia as a consequence and also Chagas disease, which is a cause of heart disease caused by a trypanosome parasite. That's a big cause of heart disease in Latin America, affecting six to 7 million people. And it's now now in in Texas as well. And so making, and probably a lot of your listeners never heard of these diseases. And in fact, my first book was called Forgotten People, Forgotten Diseases, uh, about these conditions, which are um, some of the most common afflictions of of humankind but overwhelmingly in, in poor countries and raising awareness uh, about these diseases and how are we making vaccines for them has been uh, a lifelong quest and also trying to provide access to essential medicines we worked on I worked on a program with uh, David Mullen youth Liverpool School of tropical Medicine alan Fenwick and Imperial College London and now more than a billion people have received access to those medicines on an annual basis which by the way includes ivermectin so sure. um, the, the irony is you know I get uh, I get accused by the anti-vaccine people of um, unfairly uh, targeting ivermectin I say look there's probably no one you're talking to that's responsible for more people on this planet getting ivermectin right. than <laughs> I am and but 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 for good reason it, it Works for river blindness, which is right. a parasitic worm infection, and and strongyloidiasis, and scabies, and yeah. and lymphatic filariasis, but it doesn't work for COVID.
0: Um, you know, one other, uh, you know, in the twilight of his career, um, Hilary Koprowski worked around the corner here at uh, at Thomas Jefferson University, and in the late 1990s, I went and visited him uh, over there, and at the time, he was working on. Uh, producing rabies vaccines uh in a variety of plant species uh, tobacco i think tomatoes some other ones and and there was two goals of his work at the time one was uh sort of you know can plants serve as these inexpensive production systems for for vaccine materials? The other was this concept uh, of the edible vaccine, and that uh, you know, in some of these uh, poorer countries where the, the cold chain doesn't exist and so forth, you know, can we one day uh, create that uh, banana plantation where you know we produce this, just the Sominis vaccine edibly, and the village comes and eats it, and we vaccinate everybody. Um, I came across an article actually on edible vaccines when you were at Sabin uh, running the vaccine Institute there. Any like interesting um, work that you're doing or, you know, your thoughts on sort of that whole area of molecular farming for some of these uh, countries where there is this struggle between, you know, getting the, the, the high-tech vaccine locally. Um, yeah, it's, an,
1: it's an interesting idea of using plant technology. We've, we've worked with it a little bit. Um, we, Partnered with a a company known as Fraunhofer, um, that's in the Wilmington, Delaware area, not too far from you, and they've been engineering tobacco plants in order to produce um, uh, recombinant proteins, which could include vaccine antigens. So, Mm -hmm. sort of a peacetime use of tobacco, um, which is which is an interesting idea, and we partnered with them to make one of our hookworm antigens. Um, it's it's an exciting idea. I think, you know, it, it has a lot of promise. Um, it's, you know, executing it and, and making it happen is not as straightforward as it sounds in terms of uh, dealing with the production yields and aggregation. and And, you know, there was some interest, I think, from the Brazilians uh, to see if they could start making yellow fever vaccine and in, in plants and, and Brazil, of course, which has, which excels in the agribusiness, you know, could yeah. be a good place for it. So I think um, it hasn't really met the, the promise yet, but uh, I think in time it might, there is actually one Canadian company, Medicago, that's make that's put the spike protein into plants, yep. um, into tobacco plants. And, um, and it, i guess it seems to be working i don't know what kind of scale they can make it at um uh, but i think the world health organizations had an issue with them because they're partly financed by one of the big tobacco companies i forget if it was reynolds or philip morris or something like that so that creates a lot of ethical issues for who but you know and others and so but i do think in principle the idea of engineering plants, whether it's edible vaccines, or you just use the plant technology to make the protein and give it by conventional means. Um, sure, why not, you know, why not Why not ex- exploit that kind of thing? Gotcha,
0: perfect. Um, there, while I have you, obviously, uh, you know, aside from everything that you're, you're doing with Corbivax and obviously the NTD program, uh, you've become uh, a bit of a superstar in the last couple of years on, on CNN uh, with the, one of the main faces of education, re-education uh, uh, in the area of the benefits of vaccines. Um, can you just say a couple of words on how this all came about? I mean, did, did Wolf Blitzer call you up one day and say, can you come talk on this?" How did you become such a... Uh, a superstar on CNN the uh, last couple of years. See so me there pretty much every day now.
1: Well, it's not just CNN. It was also sure. NBC, MSNBC, right. and also BBC. And I was even going on Fox News for a while until right. I had to call out the president for the in the in 2020 for the disinformation around COVID nineteen. Yeah. But even then, the daytime anchors hung in there with me for a while. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I've always had a for uh, foot planted in public engagement. Um, so I, uh, even beginning as far back as the anthrax attacks in Washington, right. back in after 9 11, um, I'd been talking a lot to the press about public issues um, and then did it again and it sort of went in, in spurts on, in, with H1N1 in 2009 and then. Interestingly, when I moved from Washington, DC, I was used to be chair of microbiology at George Washington University. When I moved to Houston in the Texas Medical Center in 20, 2011, uh, I, I thought, well, I'm going to the Texas Medical Center because of the scientific horsepower of the Texas Medical Center, and I'd sort of lose my national profile. Um, but I was willing to do that to up, up my scientific game. But then- you know, Ebola hit Dallas in 2014 and then Zika hit South Texas in 2016 and it didn't happen. So I'd already been sort of known to the cable news channels for for a while. But then, you know, when when 2020 hit, I was one of the few Americans that was actually been working on coronavirus vaccines for 10 years. And so it made for a a natural fit. And it's something I I find meaningful. Um, It's not something I was formally trained to do. As I say, it's more trial and error with a lot more error than trial, but it's, I mean, one of the things that I try to do on the cable news networks is take the role of being a scientist very seriously and, and use that to educate the public about the scientific basis of some of these decisions. I think that's sometimes the weakness of the way the communications coming out of the white house or the federal agencies, including CDC is they kind of give these summary statements, but don't go into detail what the underlying assumptions are. And, and, and assuming I get the time to do that, that's that's what I try to do. And I think generally it's been well-received. Um, you know, the key is not to lapse into a lot of jargon and and to be able to go into some depth and detail because people's lives depend on it or their families' lives depend on it, but not use too much uh, jargon. And it's, and, you know, it depends some, some my appearances are more successful than others, depending on how much time you get. If, you know, if it's something quick and you're at the end of the hour and the producer's got to finish up and and they're shouting, wrap, wrap up, wrap up, doc, you know, <laughs> your earphone, then, you know, you know, it's not as successful. But sometimes you get some long periods of time. That's why I like doing podcasts with people like you because you get a little more time, it's a little more relaxed, a little more time to explain a few things.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I know we're coming up on the uh, the quarter of the hour. I know you have a, a lot of other things to get to, um, but I just really, you know, I want to thank you uh, for doing this, really rooting you on not just with everything that you have going on with NTDs and, and corbivacs, but I, 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 I have a fingers crossed that you're going to be uh, over in Oslo soon and uh, with, with Dr. Batazzi. and it's just been really really impressive watching uh, you the last couple of years so really thanking you for coming on the show um, for, for everybody that is going to be listening or, or watching on the podcast, uh, even listening to Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean National School of Tropical Medicine, Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, please check out his new book, uh, Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. Uh, Peter, once again, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. And this was last minute. Obviously, thank you for everything you're doing there. And as we say on this show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for so many people via what you do. You a really fascinating well, story.
1: Well, thank you again. And, and, you know, the kind of science communication you're doing is so important. And that's why when you gave me the opportunity, I was eager to join you.
0: Great to have you. Good seeing you.